Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hello there, I'm Richard Scott and each week in the podcast hour I share the best audio I find from all over the world, featuring stories drawn from some of the 700,000 podcasts out there today. Coming up, Malcolm Gladwell reinterprets the past in revisionist history. (laughs) Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear, are you lonesome? Like, why did Elvis keep butchering one of his biggest songs? Then, 30 animals that made us smarter, and how the woodpeckers helping us build better bike helmets and black box flight recorders. After that, the beautiful brain mixes personal stories and journalism as it investigates what we know about contact sports and our brain health. Rugby, ice hockey, boxing, wrestling, mixed martial arts. Lacrosse, soccer, very basic common sense dictates that we change the way we play the game. And finally, two offbeat creators talk music and what it means to be a fan in I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. Plenty of stuff you're hearing, you don't even know there's a double vocal on there, but there is, and it beefs up the tone of the vocal. And people used to just automatically do a version with a doubled vocal, and I'd be like, do not, under any circumstances, play me my own vocal double. If I hear it, I will throw you off the session. And next time you hear something good, then do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. The well-known author and more recently popular podcaster Malcolm Gladwell wrote bestsellers like The Tipping Point and Outliers before starting Revisionist History back in 2016. I found the show quite late on, but people have been raving to me about it for a while. And listen to a few episodes and you get hooked in by Gladwell's pithy prose and his eye for a good story as he challenges orthodox wisdom about past events, a historical figure, even a song. Important in all of this is the belief that sometimes the best stories are found in the most unlikely of places, in the forgotten footnotes and the margins of our history books or in obscure academic journals. A new season of the show is about to kick off and I wanted to share a couple of clips. Here's the start of Divide and Conquer, the story of how a single punctuation mark could have changed the course of US history. Not long ago, I had a dinner party at my house. My friend Michael Ryan came. He's a lawyer. And I was talking to him about my love of law review articles, which is genuine, by the way. Here's a profession trained to find meaning in the particular and the arcane, to make the implausible plausible, to defend the indefensible. I mean, how are those not the perfect ingredients for a good read? Plus, law review articles 
have epic footnotes. Scores are settled, subtle loyalty jokes are made, and the really outrageous arguments are slipped in just for the benefit of the reader who wants to wait into note 136 on page 87. I go on like this until Michael Ryan kind of rolls his eyes, because that's what lawyers do. I never know whether it's modesty or self-hatred. But as you can imagine, I persist. And finally, Michael says, well, you're right. There are moments of genius in law review articles. Let me send you two of my favorites. The next morning, in my inbox, is an email from Michael Ryan with two attachments. I read the first, and I think, that's pretty cool. And then I read the second, and my jaw drops, and I say out loud, What? My name is Malcolm Gladwell. Welcome to Season 3 of Revisionist History, my podcast about things overlooked and misunderstood. The definition of a shaggy dog story is an extremely long-winded anecdote characterized by extensive narration of irrelevant incidents and terminated by a pointless punchline. Halfway into this episode, you're going to think that this is a shaggy dog story. It's not. This dog is not shaggy. You wrote this paper how many years ago? 15 years ago? Yeah, what is it published? 2004? 2004. This is Professor Michael Stokes Paulson, co-author of the Law Review article in question. Within days of reading his essay, I was in his office at Princeton University, took the train down, because it seemed urgent. In the email where he gave me directions, Paulson wrote, I'm always grateful to have anyone read my obscure, idiosyncratic Law Review articles. Exclamation point. Idiosyncratic? Sure. At least half of his piece dwelt on the meaning and interpretation of semicolons. But obscure? This is something with the potential to turn American politics upside down. No way could this article be obscure. So what was the reaction to it at the time? Thundering silence, as far as I know. I mean, I haven't been trolling the internet for it, uh, but I've never seen anything to suggest that anybody is remotely interested in this. M- maybe you can convince them. Wait, am I the first journalist to call you and interview you about this? Yes. I'm trying to remember if anybody did back in 2004 or 2005. No, people are inclined to view it as a wacky idea. Right? You're taking a legal concept of something that's 170 years old and you're saying it's still operative. If you think about it logically, it is still operative. But people's intuitions are that that can't be right. Some have divide and conquer from revisionist history. And parapraxis is a mistake that betrays our hidden feelings and emotions. If it happens when we talk, we normally call it a Freudian slip. In Analysis Parapraxis Elvis, Malcolm Gladwell plays musical detective and enlists the help of the musician Jack White to understand why Elvis Presley kept botching the lyrics in one of his most famous songs. Tell me, dear, are tonight? Whoa! <laughs> 
Wait, you 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 enjoyed that? <laughs> I did. It gets. I gets. Uh, there's some nice parts where it gets the. You can see uh, playing that live. Now that I just did that, like, well, we just did that. I played it once yesterday, like reading this. Uh-huh. But now playing it like that, I could see, wow, live, you could really, that really could get to be a really emotional song. So I didn't really think about it until just then. What led you to think that just now? Because um, it feels like, well, it's in a minor, it's got a lot of minor chords, so that, that that's already gets you in, in that melancholy vibe. But it has, it has that... Um, what just occurred to me now is he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't really care that if she's lonesome it's if he's lonesome mm-hmm. the, the singer is lonesome mm-hmm. and it's a it's a MacGuffin to to pretend like I'm I'm worried about you mm-hmm. uh, are you lonesome tonight you know but it's really he's the singer is worried about himself so that could be um, you know you, you take that kind of emotional song and you put years and years on stage and then you put drugs in the mix and then mm-hmm. in your own state of mind at the time it could be a re- you you could be onto something there it could be a real diversion that it's too powerful to, to what's, sing what's fascinating is the, the the sung parts the singer is in control and he's worried about her right the right. spoken parts the singer is vulnerable and yeah. he's confessing his own and it's so screwed up it's like I know you lied to me and I wish you hadn't Right. I wish I didn't know that you lied to me because I'd rather be in the state of being deceived than know the truth, which is like right. 17 convolutions of neuroticism. Right. Because <laughs> he's, still, he's still blaming her most of the lines. Still, still pointing the finger. White says you can't run from that kind of emotion, not if you're singing the song properly. And so when he writes songs, he tries to establish some distance between himself and the feelings he's singing about. I try to push it into a character's standpoint rather than it being a, a self uh, confession, confessional for me. Because I think that would be really hard to consistently keep living that moment over and over and over again. I've definitely seen older artists ignoring certain parts of their certain songs in their career because it's probably too close to home about something or other. But you can't avoid a song's emotional effects all the time. And especially not when you have to read a soliloquy in the middle of it, which is what the Are You Lonesome Bridge is, a speech parachuted into the heart of the song. I had a little flub moment at one point trying to figure out, well, wait a minute. It's a waltz. You know, you you have that. um, So if I'm like. I wonder if. Two, three. So one, two, three, one. Two, three, two, three. So your your brain kind of wants to go. I wonder if you're lonesome tonight. That's what your brain wants to do. You know, someone said that the world's a stage, and we must each play a part. Then it starts to get. Oh, that's oh, kind of oh, hard. I see it breaks do. down. Yeah, I mean, it would, I mean, I would. I can definitely say that this would be a lot easier if someone else was playing guitar, and I could just recite. Uh, that part. Wait, should I recite it while you play the guitar? Yeah, let's do that. So we, yeah. Do we do that? Great, yeah. I'm not going to torture you with my rendition of the spoken bridge. Well, maybe later. I'm just saying, until I die, I can say I play with Jack White. And then, because how many opportunities am I going to get like this? I asked Jack White to help me edit the soliloquy. If one were to rewrite it, I'm thinking you 
that you uh, you lose the first three lines. Mm. Fate had me playing in love, you as my sweetheart. Or even Act One was when we met. Why not? Why don't they just start with Act One? Do that. Act One was where we met. I loved you at first glance. You read your lines so carefully, never missed a cue. What would I do there? You said carefully instead of cleverly, which is a clever, beautiful phrase. <laughs> then came Act Two. You seemed to change. You acted strange. What did Jack White do there? The actual lyric is, "You read your lines so cleverly." He said, "You read your lines so carefully, carefully for cleverly." A man singing one of the songs of his musical idol. Comes to the emotionally complex center, and what do we hear? A moment of vulnerability. Can he be as clever as Elvis? He's not sure. He must be careful. Parapraxis. Sometimes you know I love I love him so much, and, and that uh, you know I'm afraid to learn more about certain things. Like it, it, you know, when you're so you're so close to it, and you've experienced certain things about. You know, nothing in comparison to what he went through, but you're in the same, we do the same kind of thing. We we perform and we go on stages and we make records and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm from a different time period, but you notice these tiny little moments that are, when you you see certain people, oh, I know exactly what that's about. I know exactly what that feels like. There are 10 known live recordings of Elvis performing Are You Lonesome Tonight? Starting in 1961, in a concert at Block Arena in Honolulu, up to the end of Elvis's life in 1977. Alan Elms and Bruce Heller analyzed them all in their essay, 12 Ways to Say Lonesome, Assessing Error and Control in the Music of Elvis Presley. Elms and Heller find that Elvis performs the sung portion of Are You Lonesome Tonight more or less flawlessly because the sung portion is the part of the song where the singer is in control. But in the spoken bridge, the narrator is suddenly the one who's been deceived and rejected. And that's the part Elvis can't get right. Elms and Heller count a total of 109 errors in those 10 live performances of the spoken bridge, 29 of which involve just four lines. I loved you at first glance, where he confesses the depths of his feelings. You seemed to change, you acted strange, where he testifies to his betrayal and rejection. And why I've never known, where he expresses his feelings of anger and victimization. And with emptiness all around, where he admits to his loneliness. The most problematic renditions of the bridge are the later ones, which come after the summer of 1972. What happens in the summer of 1972? And one day you went in and said, I'm leaving. There was another man in your life then. Mm-hmm. He was your karate teacher, right. Mike Stone. Mm-hmm. And you went off then and lived with him. Yeah. Priscilla Presley, back on the couch with Barbara Walters, America's primetime Freudian. It was said that Elvis tried to kill him or wanted him killed. Right. Do you believe that? I think at that time, yes, he did. He wanted that to happen. 
Why do the chairs in your parlor seem empty and bare? Do you gaze at your bald head and wish you had hair? Is your heart filled with pain? Shall I come back? <laughs> Tell me, dear, are you lonesome? <laughs> oh, Lord, Lord. I wonder how... <laughs> A man who fears betrayal and abandonment is betrayed and abandoned. <laughs> and I had no cause to die. <laughs> it's too much. He's a wreck. So you, baby. <laughs> Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear. Analysis, Parapraxis, Elvis from Revisionist History, produced by Pushkin Industries. From designing better camouflage to making quieter trains, we humans have been learning quite a lot from the animal kingdom. This growing area of research called biomimicry is explored in a BBC series called 30 Animals That Made Us Smarter. And one of those 30 animals is the woodpecker. In order to withstand over 1,000 times the force of gravity, a woodpecker's skull is designed to absorb shock and minimise damage. A bit like a sponge, the skull can compress and expand. The bone that surrounds the brain is thick and spongy and packed with something called trabeculae, which are a bit like microscopic plates. And this forms a tightly woven mesh which provides support and protection and stops low-frequency vibrations from passing through. It's essentially armour for the brain. Woodpeckers also have a highly adapted hyoid bone. In humans, the hyoid serves as an anchor for the tongue. It's tucked away at the root of the tongue, in front of the neck, between the lower jaw and the voice box. In woodpeckers, this solid, springy, bony support is much longer and forms a loop around the entire skull, which acts as a safety belt for the brain. The brain itself is small and smooth and held in a tight space so it doesn't move around too much, unlike our brain, which is surrounded by fluid. When the woodpecker's brain does collide with the skull, the force of this impact is spread out over a larger area. This makes them far more resistant to concussion. A woodpecker's beak also helps prevent trauma. It's extremely strong and doesn't fracture or bend. So, let's just recap. We now know that woodpeckers have four shock-absorbing features. The first is a hard but elastic beak. The second is the hyoid, a springy tongue-supporting structure that extends behind the skull. Third, an area of spongy bone in its skull. And finally, a skull design which suppresses vibration. So it should come as no surprise that woodpeckers and their shock-absorbing capabilities have attracted a lot of interest. Sang Hee Hoon and Sung Min Park at the University of California in Berkeley in the United States of America wanted to protect electronic devices like flight recorders on board planes from the damage caused by high impacts. They studied video and CT scans of the head and neck of the golden-fronted woodpecker to identify the areas that absorb mechanical shock. 
They use these as a blueprint to build a mechanical shock absorbing system to protect microelectronics that works in a similar way to the woodpecker's skull. They started out with a cylindrical steel metal enclosure, which mimicked the beak. Then they added a layer of rubber within the cylinder, which mimicked the hyoid. They replaced the spongy bones with glass beads in which the sensitive electronics were placed. And finally, they added a second layer of metal to protect the microelectronics. Hoon and Park then placed their system inside a bullet and used an air gun to fire it at an aluminium wall. In their tests, the electronics were protected against shocks of up to 60,000 Gs. Today's flight recorders can only withstand shocks of about 1,000 Gs, so the design could offer much greater protection. Studies of the woodpecker might even feed into motorsports like Formula One, where the challenge is getting drivers to decelerate in an accident in such a way that their internal organs remain intact. I'm obsessed with Formula One, and I remember watching on television Fernando Alonso's horrifying crash in Melbourne, Australia in 2016. His car made contact with another one at 305 kilometers an hour and then barrel rolled through the air before crashing into the barriers. He experienced three high-G decelerations, one at 45G, one at 46, and a final 20G load for good measure. Miraculously, thanks to neck and head support systems, sophisticated seatbelts, and a cleverly designed cockpit, he was able to walk away with his life. The hope is that newer and even better ideas may come about from this area of research. But away from the racing track and back on the public roads, the woodpecker has inspired a keen cyclist. Aniruda Surubi was riding his bike through London, England, when he had an accident. He was wearing a helmet at the time, but it cracked and he was rushed to hospital with concussion. At the time of the accident, Surubi was doing a master's degree in design at the Royal College of Art and was looking for a project for his final year. Suddenly, he had his answer. Design a better bike helmet. Once again, it was the woodpecker that came to the rescue. Surubi was particularly interested in the hyoid bone and how it wrapped around and over the top of the skull like a natural seatbelt. And then there was the flexible spongy cartilage which acts as a shock absorber against repeated blows. He began building versions of his design using different materials, starting with glass, then rubber, and ending up with cardboard. After hundreds of lab tests of each material, he finally settled on cardboard. But this wasn't just any old cardboard. He designed a special dual-density cardboard with an internal honeycomb structure. To construct the liner, he laser-cut ribs out of honeycomb cardboard and assembled them into an interlocking helmet-shaped lattice. The lattice was designed with more give, more flexibility than the commonly used polystyrene foam liner so that the flex would soften the blow and air pockets inside each individual rib would absorb the impact as well. All with the aim of offering better protection to the head of the person wearing the helmet. In lab tests, the cranium liner, as he called it, not only performed well at absorbing force, but because the liner was 90% air, it was also light and recyclable too. 
Surubi has since worked with a number of people to bring the liners and the helmet to market. So, next time you hear a woodpecker drumming, just think how this bird's headbanging has inspired designs to make the world a safer place. Some of 30 animals that made us smarter, hosted by Patrick R. Yee for the BBC World Service. And I spoke to Sarah Blunt, who produces the show, about why the idea of humans copying animals, biomimicry, why it first attracted her. Biomimicry is just a brilliant way of looking at those connections between animals and people. I mean, the series is, is about animal behaviour, but it's also about us. It's about what we can learn from looking at animals and using the ways in which they solve problems in our own design, technology, engineering. And what's been really interesting is that in some of the earlier podcasts, we've invited people to send in their own ideas, if they know of a, of a good idea, then send us in. I had one this morning from a 13-year-old boy, in fact, who listens, he told me in his letter, that he listens to the podcast on his way to school every week. And he came up with a super idea. It's incredible. It's about using scorpion venom to identify cancerous tumours in the brain. An agent has been synthesised from an amino acid found in scorpion venom. And this agent, as it's called attaches itself specifically to this rather rare tumour that's found in the brain. And what the scientists are doing are adding fluorescent dye to the amino acid so that it lights up in the brain, which means that they can then target very specifically where this brain tumour is. Well, I mean, that's just great. And for a 13-year-old boy, you know, who's been inspired by the series to then write in with that idea. And, you know, who knows? We may not be able to have time to squeeze it in this series, but it'd be great if, you know, if we do another series to try and include it. Do you have your target listener in mind? I mean, who's the series pitched at? Well, that actually has been a surprising thing. I mean, we we aimed it originally, you know, that sort of what we call the younger audience, which is that sort of 17 to 25-year-olds. But what's been really interesting is that much, much younger listeners have been in touch with us. So the youngest was a boy of six. But, of course, because it's a, a series also about biomimicry, about these designs and technology, then we've had, you know, lectures and professors from universities writing to us with their ideas and students writing to us about projects they're doing on where they've been inspired by it. So, actually, the breadth is much wider, which is absolutely fantastic. And I think probably there are different aspects of individual podcasts, you know, that appeal to different age groups. So I certainly wouldn't say, you know, it's, it's limited to a particular age group. I'd say give it a go. Go, have a listen. The other cool thing must be, of course, with it being BBC World Service, being a podcast, these listeners will be spread all over the world. Are you hearing from people from all over the place? Absolutely. And that was something that we had to be aware of when, when we were making these, you know, because a lot of listeners, English may not be their first language. And some of the designs and ideas that we talk about in the programs can get quite technical and can be quite difficult. So not only are we trying to convey quite difficult ideas, but also, you know, be, make sure that people can understand what, what, what it's all about. So we've got to be careful about the language, about terms. If we're using scientific terms, then we try to explain them or we try to give analogies so that people understand what we're talking about. But yes, I mean, in terms of responses, they've been coming from, from all across the world and that, that's been absolutely fantastic. I thought it was interesting as well. You decided to do the series as a scripted 
piece with kind of Patrick, uh, the presenter, talking about all different research via a script, but n- you weren't actually interviewing the scientists themselves about it. What, why was that? And I think what's been really interesting is is by using just Patrick, you know, the idea is that as a listener, you've got this very close connection with the presenter. He's talking to you. And so it makes it more personal. And the style is very conversational. And that's deliberate. So that, you know, you feel like you're being you're being spoken to by one person. When we're researching and writing the scripts, we do contact the scientists who work we're talking about and check, you know, facts with them and check the scripts with them and make sure they're happy with what we're saying. So we have involved them. So it's, it's been a different way of making a series, but, it, but I think it's worked. I'm going to put you on the spot now. I've been listening to quite a few episodes and I'm listening to things going, my God, I had no idea that muscles could do that or that the Kingfisher could be used in this way <laughs> in the design of a train. What are some of the things that you've been hearing that you've gone, oh, my God, that's amazing? So often you don't think about these things. I mean, you mentioned there the, the train and, and the kingfisher, that, which is the first in the series. And, I mean, it's, it's a really simple idea when you think about it, but just wonderful. So for, for people that haven't heard the podcast, this is a story about the high-speed train in Japan, which originally had a blunted nose. And when it entered tunnels, the air, it was a bit like putting a plunger into a tunnel. So the air built up ahead of the train, which meant that you got a loud bang as the air was pushed down through the tunnel and emerged and then the train shot out. And that bang was louder than the environmental noise levels. But also what they wanted to do was try and make the train faster because they thought if they could stop, prevent this build-up of air and prevent the noise, it also make the train faster. And it, this engineer that worked on it was also a keen bird watcher and was at a meeting of a bird group where one of his colleagues there told him about how there were scientists that had been inspired by birds in the design of planes. And this got this guy thinking. And what he observed was the way in which kingfishers, when they dive into water, do so very quietly. They hardly make a splash. And so he became very interested in the streamlined shape of the kingfisher's beak. And he took the beak and studied the shape of the beak and the way it was built and realised that if he designed the front of the train like a kingfisher's beak, the air would glide over the nose of the train and not get blocked up and not produce this boom. And that's exactly what happened. And I mean, it's just, it's just a beautiful story, isn't it? Sarah Blunt, the producer of 30 Animals That Made Us Smarter from the BBC World Service. Imagine your brain as a very soft piece of raw meat sitting inside your skull. Sorry, I can't think of a good vegetarian option at the moment. And each time your head gets hit or punched, there's a risk your brain gets damaged by either rebounding against your skull or by getting twisted and torn as it shifts back and forth and sideways. That's one of the powerful images presented in The Beautiful Brain, a series about the brain and how it gets affected by the sports we play. And it also looks at how sports like American football and rugby are responding to these risks. The show focuses on the degenerative brain condition called CTE, short for Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, which shows up in an increased risk of dementia, problems with memory, depression, aggression and personality changes. And once you have it, there's no treatment, there's no cure. 
Dr Bennett Amalu made the breakthrough linking CTE to repeated blows to the head in sport back in 2002. That's after he studied the brain of an ex-NFL player called Mike Webster, who died from a heart attack. And I felt it was my duty to announce joyfully my findings. I did not know what the NFL stood for. I did not grow up in the United States of America. I grew up in Nigeria. I did not understand that football was a major component of the American way of life. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize the immensity of what I was getting involved with. I didn't know what a touchdown was. All I knew was that this was a game. People wore helmets and intentionally slammed their heads into one another. And making my findings public was intended to save lives, to make the lives of other people better, and actually to improve the game, to enhance the humanity of the game of football, and not just football, of every other contact sport. Rugby, ice hockey, boxing, wrestling, mixed martial arts, lacrosse, soccer, very basic common sense dictates that we change the way we play the game. Having presented his findings about Webster's brain in the medical journal Neurosurgery, Bennett Amalu expected the NFL to be grateful for the illuminating diagnosis. Instead, members of their mild traumatic brain injury committee called for the research to be retracted. But he didn't stop. He then studied the brains of other deceased NFL players, Terry Long, who had committed suicide by drinking antifreeze, as well as Andre Waters and Tom McHale, and found CTE. There was pushback again. He was asked repeatedly if he knew the implications of what he was doing, not that he could save lives, but that he could ruin football. And yet he kept going. On a personal level, initially I found it hard to figure out what keeps someone going deeper and deeper into this kind of research. But then here I am, asking the same questions. I've thought about it many times. So, in the mornings when you wake up, you put on a nice dress, you put on a perfume, you look good, you go to work in a nice environment. But me, in the mornings... I put on scrubs. I go to the morgue. There is nothing glamorous about the morgue. I deal with mankind at its worst. I deal with human beings at the most vulnerable moments and times of their lives. Death. So that gives me a unique perspective many people wouldn't have. So every morning, I'm reminded of my own vulnerability, my own mortality. And then I'm inspired to begin to ask questions. What is life after all? What am I expected to do with my life? And that was what led me to the truth. What is life after all? And I, I discovered that if I deny the truth, then I'm denying my, the essence of my life. 
So whatever I do in every aspect of my life, in my work, in my science, I must embrace and uphold the truth. It is who I am. So the work I did, which was later confirmed independently by other people, other people have also taken it up and advanced it. It is foolhardy for us to continue to do what we know is not good for us. One of those other people was Dr. Anne McKee. Dr. Anne McKee is a neuropathologist and expert in neurodegenerative disease at New England Veterans Administration Medical Centers. She's also a professor of neurology and pathology at Boston University School of Medicine and director of Boston University CTE Center. In 2018, she made the Time 100 Most Influential People list. She received acclaim for her case series featured in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which found that nearly every former NFL player who played at least one regular season game and whose brain was donated for research was diagnosed post-mortem with CTE. But Dr. McKee came into CTE through one of its known symptoms, Alzheimer's. What really uh, fascinated me is sort of a a Sherlock Holmes type, type of mystery. You have a patient who comes in with uh, peculiar symptoms, and you want to know the reason why. And there's a lot we don't know about the brain. And so for 20-odd years, I was very involved in Alzheimer's disease and neurodegeneration um, with a focus on tau protein. Over uh, Coincidentally, one of the cases that came in uh, was a boxer who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, uh, and he'd been a world champion boxer. And uh, when I looked at his brain, it was fascinating to me because he had a very unusual pattern of tau pathology, the likes of which I'd never seen before. Tau is a substance that builds up in Alzheimer's disease and damages brain cells essential for learning and memory. Tau buildup is caused by increased activity of enzymes that act on tau, called tau kinesis, which causes the tau protein to misfold and clump, forming tangles. It was very distinctive. It was uh, unique in my experience, even though I'd been focusing on these diseases. So I uh, wanted to look at more boxers to see if uh, they all had this same pattern of tau pathology. And then, uh, coincidentally, uh, I was asked to look at the brains of football players. And I was very eager to do it because from the beginning of time, I was a, a football fan, having grown up in a American football family with my brothers playing, my dad playing. So uh, lo and behold, the first couple of cases that we got from American football players, they were both 45 when they died, and they had this absolutely florid pathology that, again, was this very extraordinary uh, pathology. It looked just like the boxers, only uh, the boxer had died at age 73, almost 30 years older than the football players, so his disease was more advanced. And that was the beginning of setting up a brain bank. We now have over 560 brain donors in the brain bank. Not all of them have been analyzed, uh, but we have uh, over 320 cases of CTE amongst American football players, but also boxers, soccer players, rugby players, military veterans, and um, other individuals who've experienced repetitive head trauma. 
Anne McKee, the director of Boston University's CTE Centre, interviewed in episode two of The Beautiful Brain called An Inconvenient Truth. And that show is produced and narrated by Hannah Walker-Brown and is available exclusively via Audible. For a long time, the Mountain Goats were just a one-man band. The singer and songwriter John Darnell started writing songs at home in the 90s, then released them on cassette tape or 7-inch vinyl. Now the Mountain Goats have other members. They record their albums in a proper studio, tour the world, and have built up a very loyal fan base. Among them's the writer and podcaster Joseph Fink, whose long-running audio series Welcome to Nightvale imagines life in the very strange desert town of Nightvale through news reports, announcements and ads on the local radio station. Putting Fink and Darnell, two quirky creators, together to mull over music, life, the creative process and a Mountain Goats album song by song doesn't exactly sound like a recipe for mainstream success. But their show, I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, has been called one of the best podcasts of 2018, and it's won over lots of listeners. In the first season, fanboy Fink geeked out about the Mountain Goats' 2002 album, All Hail West Texas, with Darnell giving insights into how he wrote these songs and his experiences. And in most episodes, they were joined by a musical guest to do a cover version of the song they were talking about. You don't have to be a Mountain Goats fan to enjoy it and the two have an honest, easy rapport as they open up about their lives and how they work. Season two started recently and was all recorded last year while Darnia was still putting together the Mountain Goat's latest album, In League With Dragons. So the pair riff about the whole process of releasing music into the world while this is actually happening. Here's some of an episode where they're joined by another podcaster, PJ Vote, one of the hosts of Gimlet's tech show, Reply All. Everything's fresh, we just recorded the album a month ago. You know, um, and and so it's, it is what I'm thinking about. You know, and so that's nice. Whereas by the time the album gets released, often you're overthinking about the record. When you audit mixes, uh, that's a long process. Right? We you record for eight or ten days or whatever, and you get rough mixes. If you're smart, you don't listen to them very much. You check them out to see what you did. You maybe play them for your family or whatever, but you do not sit there and go, "Oh, I, man, that sounds good." Because then you will get married to your rough mix. And rough mixes are just bringing up the levels very quickly. Put it, mixing is a science and an art, right? And, uh, and there's a lot of choices you can make in mix. Very aggressive mixers will say, you know, that guitar sounds good, but it's not appropriate in this song, and take it out, right? Um, do all kinds of things in mix. Oh, mixing that would is, very unhappy. Oh, yeah. Well, it depends on... <laughs> then don't be a major label artist, because often you, you lose your, your control over mix. And there's some mixers like who are very, very... You know, they're artists and, and they have their own, they take what you did and they take it to the next level, right? But you're usually not there for that. You can always go back to them and say, no, I want it to sound more like the rough. But then they're going to say, well, you listen to the rough a lot. You send me the parts and then I'm the person. There's a sense in which your rough mix, the thing you did in the studio, is just building, you know, carving the beams from the tree to build the house, and then the mixer is the one who puts the house together. Yeah, right. And then the mastering person is the one who shows the world that it's actually in 3D, that it exists in 3D space. So we're waiting now for mixes, uh, which we'll get in a few weeks. And uh, uh, I, have, but I'm not listening that much to the roughs because I know better. If you get married to the roughs, you really you're denying yourself the real joy of letting the mixer do their work. But you will get married to those roughs. If you listen to them, you go, yeah, we did good. I hear everything there. And the mixer has never heard it before often when they get it. And they listen to it and they go, 
yeah, no, that's kind of cool. I would like to hear a little plate reverb on that voice, right? And they'll do it, right? And uh, and it will change a lot from the mix. And if you have listened to the first one too much, it's just like if I played you yesterday, but there was but the voice was in an echo chamber, you'd say, no, 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 there's no echo chamber on yesterday. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so. When do you hear it? Like, what's the point where not like what's the point where you hear it most actually clearly, and you don't hear what's wrong with it, and you don't hear what you wish it was, but you actually hear it? Um, I don't know because it, it, the whole process is so strange that you, you never really fully get used to it. I mean, for me, recording and everything is so distanced from the, the writing, which I'm the only one who's there for that, right? Yeah. It's like, and so, so there's all these stages to occupy that I think you learn to think of them all as their own places. Right, and you stop thinking about the relationship they bear to one another. They're all different stations along the along the process. I don't know if that answers that question. Not yet. No. I okay. guess what I'm wondering is like, like I feel like sometimes it's like you have an idea. I mean, I don't, I don't understand anything about making music, and and like music is always the thing that I compare what we're doing to. And one of the people I work with is a musician, and he's always like, "That's not. That's not how music there's works. no relationship <laughs> at all here." Um, but he, but like there's like a core of a thing that you are either trying to express or you feel like you're excavating or like there's something you're trying to sketch. And there's periods where, at least for me, it's like we have it. And then like sometimes that's early in the process and a lot of things are going to have to happen. And like you'll check back in later to see if it's still there. Well, it changes as you go, right? It's not the the impulse. It, I, I don't think there's a platonic form of what I'm trying to do, right? Your relationship to it changes as it changes. The first song on this record uh, was a very jaunty traveling Wilburys style thing, uh-huh. but in its final form, it became this dirge, right? That's what we did in the studio. It was a lark. It just started to happen. A guy was playing an organ. He was getting ready to set up to play it, and I started singing along. I was actually in an echo chamber, and uh, and it sounded very pretty and good, right? Well, the song went to a completely there's a very dramatically different place from from the demo that I had sent around and from the one we had rehearsed, but it was right for the song. I've been doing this a long time, so I was able to be open to that and go, oh, guess what happened? It's, it's, it's as though the song had a will of its own or just chance and being around other people took it someplace else. Younger songwriters generally can't tolerate that at all, and I was one of them. It's like, no, I wrote it and it sounds like this. But that's actually a much, to me, a much more immature relationship to your own work. Your own work has something in it, right, that can survive any number of permutations, right? That, that it doesn't have to be your vision. I'm not into trying to impose my vision on the song. I want the song to go where it wants to go. Uh, and so, so yeah, it's, it, it, it only gels when it's done. And even then, it's only a form. It kind of only exists live in another sense. Recording is such a bizarre artificial thing. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It feels like it's nice. It feels like it takes some of the pressure off of you too if you think there's some some of it doesn't exist inside of you yeah but it only gets it takes 20 years to get that point (laughs) (laughs) like i I used to get mixes back and said we put reverb on the vocal of it no i don't have reverb on my vocals i hate it i still struggle with it but uh because everybody likes reverb it makes things a little spacier but to me it always sounds pretentious you know so is it like was there a point where you broke or was it just like a slow Wearing down. Well, I wanted to challenge myself to hear the things that other people instinctively want. You know, I wanted to, to challenge myself to listen differently. I'm, uh, that's one way that I stay fresh. It's like I want to always interrogate my own assumptions and needs. And lo- like, for example, doubling vocals. I always have had an allergy to hearing my own vocal doubled. Plenty of stuff you're hearing, you don't even know there's a doubled vocal on there, but there is. And it beefs up the tone of the vocal 
And people used to just automatically do a version with a doubled vocal. And I'd be like, do not under any circumstances play me my own vocal double. If I hear it, I will throw you off the session, right? And now, then on, like two albums ago, I did one doubled on purpose to see if I could handle it. And I liked it. It's saying that's how it sounds to me now. It sounds warm to me. And I think... Which for, song was that? That was um, Unmasked on Beat the Champ. And I tracked it that way at home. I was like, double, do a double, see what happens. And before that, I think in the pre-production version of Hair Match, we tried that too. That was something my dad taught me, you know, because my dad recorded and uh, he taught me very early on. He's like, always double your vocals. It see, sounds good. Rules like that. Are not good. <laughs> but that's what so many people think. Is like, and I, 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 I've seen producers go, okay, I won't do that for you. Because <laughs> I would hear it. I would just have an allergic reaction to it. But for me, that's that's one thing that doing the recording is about. Is like, what are the things that you're shooting down automatically, right? And can you warm up to them if people think they're good ideas and see what you think? Some of season two of I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, a production of Night Vale Presents with Merge Records. And that's about it from us for now, as well as I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. This week we've been listening to Revisionist History, 30 Animals That Made Us Smarter and The Beautiful Brain. Finally, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't right (laughs) now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.